Welcome to Puro Politics, the political podcast of the San Antonio Express News. My name is Gilbert Garcia, opinion writer and columnist. And uh, we have a very special guest today. I'm really uh, uh, happy that we're going to be joined by uh, Dennis Nixon, who's the chairman and CEO of IBC Bank. And he's also someone who's, I think, taken a, a special interest in looking at immigration and border policy over the years. And he's he put together a, this document, which is uh, Common Sense Border Management Solutions. And so we're going to talk primarily today about about the issues of the border and what and what uh, Texas is facing right now. And Dennis, you, uh, fairly recently, I think it was maybe a couple of months ago, you came to the editorial board and we talked a little bit about the, uh, these issues. And one of the things that was really interesting to me was you, you know, we, there's so much focus in this country on job creation and uh, the need for job creation. And I think you made the, the case and I think it was a very persuasive case that our problem in, the, in this country right now is really not with job creation. It's with workforce, a lack of workforce, and that this is a problem that we're really going to have to that will probably become a bigger concern as the years go by. And so if you could just talk a little bit about um, what you see as the challenge that we've got with having sufficient workforce in this country and how we've, we've kind of found ourselves in this position. Uh, thank you, Governor, for having me on board with you today. Yeah, I think that's really how I got started in the whole mm -hmm. border issue and immigration was my research uh, uh, into the, uh, into the matter opened my eyes to the the demographic problem and the fact that we've had low fertility rates in most of the developed uh, countries around the world for many decades now. And that's resulted in a collision course now with all of the baby boomers retiring, mm -hmm. the baby boomers being the largest part of our workforce. And so we're followed by the millennial population, which, which mathematically is a much smaller group of people than the baby boomers. And so after World War II, obviously, we that's where that came from. We had all these people have children, and now right. they're retiring, or many of them have retired. And by 2030, most of those people will be out of the workforce, and many many of them will be pass will pass away. So we have a big gap in workforce. And so I started investigating it more and more and more, and mm -hmm. I realized, my gosh. Uh, half of our workforce is coming from immigrants in this country and that we don't have an immigration policy today that is matching our workforce needs uh, with the, with the people that we need to do the jobs. And so I determined in, through my research that we need a six to 700,000 low skilled workers every year. Mm -hmm. And then we need all the high skilled workers we can find, uh, because we're not graduating enough engineers, especially the STEM areas of, uh, of education that we need to be able to maintain our economy. And I'm a basic banker, and I say, you know, people plus productivity equals GDP. Well, if you don't have the people, maybe you can uh, maybe you can do some of that work with automation. I'm a I'm in the business of banking, so automation is a big part of our business. But we still need people. Today, I only I've only got 87 percent of my jobs filled. Wow. And we're working very hard every day to try to fill those jobs. And we just cannot fill them because we don't have enough people in the workforce. And the other problem is our labor participation rates are not as strong as they used to be. Right. So now we have a gap between the jobs available today and the people who are available for those jobs, about 2.7 million. And that number fluctuates between 2 and 3 million people pretty constantly. So here we have this dilemma of mm. workforce needs for businesses, and yet we don't have an immigration policy that provides that. And this whole mess with the asylum now that's been created yeah. under the Biden administration, uh, although providing people, has not provided people in an orderly fashion to match our workforce needs with what we're doing. This is an interesting factoid. I, uh, I'm on the board of visitors of the MD Anderson in Houston. Mm. 
been on that board for about 20 years. In our last meeting in the fall, Dr. Pristers, who was our head of that uh, MD Anderson Institution, was on stage talking about uh, the issues at the institution. And one of the factoids that he pointed out, he says, one in six of our research scientists and the people who were here trying to find a cure for cancer were born in the United States. One in six. Wow, so that used to be like one in one, one half. Now it's one in six. And so we're seeing greater and greater dependency in the world on people from all over the world. And we need to re recognize that we just have not. And since Reagan, we haven't had any kind of basic immigration reform that's right. substantive that can actually face the problems we face uh, coming coming out of the uh, today's world. Well, even in San Antonio, I think we've seen recent evidence where we've had, uh, for example, restaurants closing, not necessarily because they their business was bad, but challenges that they had in just filling filling jobs. In some cases. Exactly right. We've got, you know, that's that basic workforce need, those people that are yeah. in the kitchen, the servers, and mm -hmm. people who do the basic work that we need to have done. I mean, I am aware of that as well, that some restaurants are having to make a choice whether I open for lunch or whether I open for dinner because I can't staff both. We've seen that critically out in West Texas where the big oil and gas boom was. A lot of people uh, on restaurants and small service mm -hmm. businesses couldn't open because they didn't have the people. The oil and gas industry was absorbing them all, and they were actually Actually having to bring people in by vans from all the surrounding cities in that area to be able to meet that workforce demand. So do you see the solution as just revamping our work visa? I mean, the, the work visa system that we have now is, I have to say, it's really complicated and I struggle with making making sense of it because we have there's just so many different types of visas and, and so many different kind of rules for, for each of them. I mean, is it is that fundamentally what we're, what we're looking at here, the need to just really reapproach the way we, we handle work visas? It's clear that things need to be streamlined. I mean, the real reality is anything we do with government seems to get overly complicated. Yeah. And one of the criticisms, obviously, is that all these people are taking U.S. jobs. Uh, nobody in the construction industry or nobody in the, in the food service industries or, or in the agriculture, I tell you, say anybody's taking anybody's jobs. There's just no people around. In my case, I can testify to the fact that, that, uh, we've got only 87 to 88% of our workforce filled. Yeah. <clears throat> and we're looking for people every day. And our HR function today is full time trying to recruit, retain, and people continuously move around. And one of the problems we have today is the internet itself. The internet's been a great, resource for controlling price because you can shop and look at all different places in order to get the best price. Well, it also works against us in terms of retaining people because people can put their resume now out on the internet and they constantly get pinged by various businesses that mm -hmm. want to hire them. So the turnover rate we're also seeing in business, not only do we have a workforce shortage, we have a constant revolving door of people coming and going, which is running our, our training costs mm -hmm. and our customer service quality down because people don't stay in the job long enough to get their skills up. And so you have people complaining that you don't have good workers. Well, it's not that we don't have good workers. We can't retain them long enough to train them properly and maintain them properly. It seems to me that the, what we've seen over maybe, I don't know, the last 15, 20 years is a shift in what's going on at the border. Um, with the change has been going from having primarily uh, single men coming from Mexico um, and trying to cross into the border, trying to find work in the United States and it generally trying to come in undetected so they could they could come in. Now, what we're primarily seeing is uh, we're seeing families coming, 
from other countries, whether it's Northern Triangle countries, places like Venezuela, families coming, whether it's escaping persecution, gangs, economic problems, and not trying to come in undetected, but they're just, they're turning themselves at the border and saying they want to request asylum. So the, the entire uh, issue seems to have changed completely from what I can, from what I can see. And you've talked about the need to change the way we approach asylum claims. And I think one of the things that you recommend, but I think it's in here is, is that uh, you talk about having asylum claims made in the country of origin, whatever, whatever country the people uh, are trying to, to flee, that they make those cl uh, claims at the consulate in, in their, in that country. And you see this as like a key to the, to, to dealing with this problem. Yeah, I think what's what the, the bottom line for me is is you've got to take the money out of this process. You know, this whole situation is under the control of the cartels in the southern border. I'm not as familiar with the northern border issues as I am the southern border, but the northern border is also yeah. becoming a big problem. But people have been invited to come. I mean, that's what Biden did, and whether you agree with him or don't agree with him, that's what he did. You're talking about during his campaign when it, he said, it, it said you bring, and he's yeah. basically put in place policies that said. Come and if you, uh, if you surrender at the border and you claim you fear for your life and you want to, um, uh, seek asylum, then they're going to put you in the asylum process. Uh, the difficulty that we have today is that that's all being managed by the cartels and the people that come across the border, at least here in Texas, we know for sure. And we know pretty much in California and other states that there's a, there's a toll on the border and the cartels are collecting that toll every time somebody comes. So my first choice is to get rid of the money. You stop the money by sending people back and say, look, you have to do it a different way. If you want to seek uh, asylum under our laws and you can qualify, well, then you start at the, I think you should start at the embassy or the counselor office in the country where you live. Now, that could create some problems in terms of security, but in most That's cases, what I was most cases no. You can go into one of our counselor offices or one of our embassies and make that claim and start that process. I guess the thing I, I would wonder about is, uh, after they've made that claim and then they, they, once they leave that consulate and they have to remain in their country while they're waiting for the process to play out, is that, does that put them? And I, I honestly don't know what, what the, the thinking of an individual would be in that situation, but would there be a concern that, that their safety could be? Uh, I think that is a concern, but we also know that 95, somewhere 96, 97 percent of the people who are seeking claims based upon fear, fear of their life mm -hmm. are not not claims that can be made. So most of the claims that are really coming are more economic than they are a real fear for life. And mm -hmm. so I think that that basic data that we've seen from uh, from the immigration services indicates that most of these claims are turned down. So I would say, yes, maybe there are some risks there, but then I think also that you could move to the country next to you and make that claim. That yeah. um, that's what stay in Mexico is sort of about, that you make that claim in the closest country to you. But I think you need to make that claim through our existing facilities. We have counselor offices and embassies all over the world. Now, State Department is not going to jump up and volunteer to do that mm. because that's a big job. Yeah. But I think we're going to have to fund that, fund that resource at those local levels. But we're forced, we're spending billions of dollars now on border security that we would not have to spend if we, if we got this process contained at home and then we took the money out of it because the people who come up here that spend four or five six seven thousand i understand the chinese are paying as much as forty or fifty thousand dollars to cross 
that those people were not going to come back again because they don't have the money to do it. So if they come up here, you send them back immediately, which is what I'm calling for. If you want to make a claim, you go to our consular office or you go to embassy and make that claim. If that claim has got substance to it after an interview with an embassy officer, then you can go through the process. And what that process is, I haven't designed that, but I believe it can be designed in a way that's effective for the people who have that issue and cut the numbers down from thousands to one or two type thing. Yeah, I, I think last year when Title 42, which was the emergency health order that uh, President Trump put in place uh, during the early days of COVID, uh, to uh, he, he used that to deal with with border issues and basically turn away anyone who was who was uh, arrived at the border. Um, that uh, ended uh, Title 42 ended uh, last year as far as uh, dealing with border issues. And uh, what the, the Biden administration uh, suggested or, or introduced was the idea of regional processing centers where people could go to other Latin American countries and um, they could apply for asylum there. I, I think it's been very slow in the way that they've actually rolled it out. I think that the um, but the idea was to try to uh, kind of what you're talking about, which is to to take the smugglers out of the equation and also to save people the just the. Uh, arduous, you know, long trip that they would have to make to the United States. And I, I'd be interested to see how this plays out, but it just doesn't, it seems to have been very slow in the implementation so far. What we've seen. No, I, I think it's because they have not found a solution that works because they, they haven't sent people back and people, basically it's a rush. It's almost like, you know, the Oklahoma land rush. You have an opportunity maybe that once in a lifetime and you don't want to pass it up. And so you see people coming that are basically rushing across the border uh, because they feel like they have been, <laughs> they've yeah. reached the, the motherland, so to speak, and they want to stay here. And so, yeah, I, and I can understand that. You know, we have to look down today at Latin America. Latin America's a mess. Yeah. You know, the governments down there have failed the people and the people are looking for ways to improve their lives and you can't blame them for that uh, but we have to have order in our country too because now we're seeing these unintended uh, consequences of this action resulting in roaming gangs and where they're beating yeah. up on police pe people and they're going to be robbing businesses and doing other things because they have no way to earn a living they're not allowed to work uh, that work process is really if you're going to have a temporary asylum program and people are going to spend eight or nine or ten years in the country before they get a hearing there's got to be some way to support those people well, why should we? Uh, why should the taxpayer be caught with that tab? Why? Why don't we allow them to have some kind of a work permit? So if you're going to have this process, we'll tie it together with some kind of a work permit in order to allow these people to have substance. So yeah. it's it's a it's just a mismanaged process all the way around at almost every level, and now it's absorbed all of our border uh, officials in terms of processing. We talked a little <clears throat> bit about this before we started the, the podcast, and I, and I was curious to get your take on it because I, I, I struggle with the idea what constitutes a legal uh, asylum process in this country because we, if we look at the law, it says someone has to enter through a port of entry or in the United States. And I think there's been some uh, confusion about how that should be interpreted. And I've seen federal court decisions where they've said that, you know, um, that someone can enter between ports of entry. I, I know there's a lot of debate about that. Um, and, uh, you know, for example, if someone crosses the, the river and comes into Eagle Pass, are they now, is it now considered legal because they've, they've, they are now, they've set foot in the United States and they're saying, I want to apply for asylum. And so I want to kind of get your thoughts on that because I think that um, when we talk about illegal immigration or someone coming in illegally, um, I think 
I, I think there's a lot of confusion in the country about, about what, because we all agree that asylum is a legal process, that people have the right to at least apply, even if we know that, that the great majority of them are, are going to have those re, uh, applications uh, denied. So I guess the, the question is really how we decide what is acceptable uh, within the asylum process. How, what, is, what is an acceptable way to apply for asylum? And I want to kind of get your thoughts on that. No, and I think that's the really what the, the confusion is. And I think the reality is, is that the Biden administration has created one very liberal, very open door mm-hmm. interpretation of those and using what I understand the basis of what they're doing is using parole as a part of that process. In other words, you've come into the country and the government can grant you parole. That parole process has been traditionally used for emergencies like a medical care or some kind of uh, action that someone had to come here to the United States to do something, and they're given permission to come in for a specific period of time and then return. So I, I believe, as I've seen or looked at it, I I believe the readings I say, I've seen says that they don't have to interpret it that mm-hmm. way. They mm-hmm. can put a block on it, send everybody yeah. back and say, no, you have not, you don't have that right to come to the United States under yeah. the law. Yeah. It's, and, and like we know, you know, we could get a Supreme Court decision, you know, that's split. And so the people interpret things the way they want them to interpret them. And so we continue to have one liberal process that says, okay, you come. And then we have another process that says, no. I know from my practical experience that you have no right to come into the United States unless you're a U.S. citizen. Mm. And so our border, border CBP people every single day make those decisions thousands mm-hmm. and thousands of times at our, at our border crossing ports. And I'm sure if you've traveled around the world, any place you go through a, a, a checkpoint in every country you come into, basically, and you have a, you, you are permitted to come. You're not, mm-hmm. you don't have any right to come yep. into that country. And so if you have your, papers in order and you have your all your documentation in order they allow you to come into the country but if you don't they can refuse you and send you back and that happens every single day at our ports of entry people are, re- are refused entry because yeah. of some particular reason it's up to that individual inspector to determine under his yeah. subjective view so the government has basically said now Biden administration has basically said now to the border patrol and CBP that these people all if they come in they make that claim uh, then they are allowed to be processed. And that's exactly what yeah. they're doing. And it's a very peaceful process. You know, the media makes it out like it's some sort of uh, terribly uh, destructive and violent process going on at the border. And we have offices in Eagle Pass, and it's not the case at all. The people are coming in, they're basically holding their hands up and said, I fear for my life, and I I, uh, I want to seek my rights under the asylum laws, and they're told to go get in line over there, and they wait. Yeah. Once they get in line and uh, are, are marshaled, then they get on some sort of a transportation bus, take to a processing center, and then they're released. So that's there's nothing violent about any of that. It may turn into violence as people- It's the volume of people. people. That, just too pro- many people. That's the problem, right. yeah. yeah. And and the, the, it's, it seems to me that what's what we've seen happen is, you know, one approach will be tried by one administration or, uh, and then people see what the problems with that. And they say, well, let's do this other. And for example, I mean, both the Obama administration and the Trump administration, it did mass detention mm-hmm. and people were looking at this thing. Oh, this is a horrible situation. And it, because I mean, we're looking at horrible in some, in some cases, we're looking at horrible options. We try this, this is kind of horrible. And this is the alternative is, is, you know, there's some many, there's some negative things about that. So people were looking at, at how mass detention was working and, 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 uh, 
I think I'm, I'm guessing the Biden administration came in thinking, well, we don't want to do that. And so there has been this, when you talk about the parole, the release of people while their claims are being processed. And then we see the challenges with that. You know, we, many, uh, migrants waiting for their claims to be processed or in New York, Chicago, places like that. And those, those communities are being, uh, inundated with people and struggling, struggling with that. So, um, and we, we did remain in Mexico. And I know you talked about, about that a little bit, but you know, then, then you're basically asking people to wait in Mexico, just, and which is not their home country and to, to be there for an extended period, a year or two. And that, I mean, that has its, its problems. No, too. and that's a serious problem too. Because yeah. what, if we can't solve the problem in the United States and yeah. it's overwhelming us, you can imagine what it would do to Mexico. Sure. You know, they're a country of 125, 130 million people. And so you can't have 10 million people or 20, 8 million people, you know, making their yeah. home in Mexico. They've got the same problems. It'd be all the kinds of crime and problems. And then obviously you have the criminal problems already in Mexico those people would greatly abuse. The big problem here is that we have a failure of Congress and the executive branch to pass meaningful legislation to have immigration reform and asylum reform. So you and I can talk, talk this issue to death, yeah. but when, when our political leaders cannot come together and sit around a table like we're doing right now and sit down and come up with a meaningful immigration policy and asylum policy that solves the problem, mm -hmm. we're going to continue to have these what I would call bastard problems that just never get fixed because people won't stand up for it. And it's to me, the most ridiculous part about this is all the money that's being wasted and billions and billions of dollars that are being wasted, not only by the state, but by the federal government to try to, to try to manage something that's more manageable when the law is changed and the people deal with it. And it's, yeah. it's just, disgusting to me that both parties can't come together and sit around a table and come up with a solution for this. We know we need people. We know we more or less what the estimates are modeling shows we need. Mm -hmm. So we should be able to yeah. sit down in a civilized country and come up with a policy that works for us and works for the rest of the world. Well, along those lines, um, there was a recent negotiating process in the Senate, a bipartisan negotiating process on uh, a border bill wasn't going to deal with all the all the uh, problems, uh, but it 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 had it, it dealt with some of the things that people have been talking about. I think that it imposed uh, or it allowed the administration to uh, shut things down at places other than ports of entry. After I think if you had four thousand encounters per day for over a period of seven days, uh, I believe it was going to put more funding into the um, immigration court system, which is something that you've talked about as, as a really important uh, piece of this. Um, what were your thoughts on that um, on that bill, which ultimately got blocked? Uh, you had Republicans uh, in in the House and Senate, uh, and and President former President Trump all he he came out against it, and you and you had Republicans ultimately deciding not to support it. Um, what were your thoughts on that bill? I think the big problem that killed it was just the fact that numbers, you know, 5,000 a day. And then I think it, there was another trigger at 8,500 or something like that. Mm -hmm. Nobody trusted that that would be a defective tool to stop mm -hmm. it. And I think the lack of trust in the executive branch to actually enforce the law and to be able to get control of it just didn't seem to be there. Mm -hmm. uh, the people I talked to, uh, the senators I visited with that talked about it, they were very skeptical that that big number, that big number was basically saying theoretically that you could 
permanently allow 1.8 million people into the United States every year under that program if it's interpreted liberally by the administration. So I think that really the bottom line of that was that there needs to be more effective overall immigration reform and not just this sort of this halfway or one small, small little edge of things that have to be done here that will just might minimally solve the problem when we can and we need to sit down and really solve it. And they they just don't seem to be capable of doing that. And obviously there's forces on both sides of the political world here that we live in that don't want any immigrants. And then you've got people who want all the immigrants. And so getting in the middle of that just seems to be such a challenge for everybody, which I don't understand. I mean, I just see, to me, that's why I call my paper common sense. It seems at some point you have to recognize, and maybe now that we've seen such a flood and now that we've seen so many countries all over the world, using that open door policy to come, you know, we just thought we were dealing with, yeah. you know, people from the South, uh, but now we've got a problem on the Canadian border. Now we've got a big problem on the Southern border. Not only do we get, are we having people come from the Latin American countries, we're having people coming from all over the world. Yeah. And so when is this going to stop and who's going to put control of it where we're going to have gangs of people roaming the streets and we're going to have some serious violence. And then we don't know whether we have terrorists and other people coming in. I mean, basically, you're pro-immigration, but you want it to be legal and orderly. Is that managed? Yeah, yeah, I think yeah. everything that we do in life has yeah. to be managed. I mean, every day I know you probably get up and you have a managed routine of what mm. you do every day. And so I think why why is America prepared to accept this chaos? Um, next month will be three years since uh, Governor Greg Abbott launched Operation Lone Star, mm-hmm. uh, through which he's uh, deployed uh Texas National Guard and Department of Public Safety uh, personnel on the border. Um, and uh, I mean, the estimated cost, I think, is a, about $10 billion uh, up to this point. Um, it's, as we know, it's very controversial. There, there are people who uh, made the argument uh, that the federal government has dropped the ball on this issue and the, the state has to, had to do something, the governor had to do something. And uh, there are People on the other side who would say that this is the federal issue. There's no, uh, this is not the responsibility of the state, and also it's it's very costly uh, to the taxpayers of Texas. You know, where, where do you fall on this issue? Yeah, I can completely understand the governor's frustration. I mean, this obviously is a terrible issue for the border and all the things that are going on on the border with the people crossing and the difficulties that these individual communities. I live in Rado, mm. uh, and we have business in Eagle Pass, for instance. We have major operations there. We have major operations up and down the border in the valley, the Rio Grande Valley mm-hmm. as well. It's not a it's not a comfortable situation to have this many people traipsing through your community where you have no way to understand what they're doing and what risks they may apply to us. You know, we have shootings all over the country now. We have all kinds of violent things happening all over the country. So you can't totally dismiss that you're going to at some point have those kind of things happening. I understand that. But this money that's being wasted, in my opinion, is being spent. It's been, been been totally ineffective, and I think at some point you have to realize it is ineffective, and it's become a political issue more than it is a factual issue. So we're spending a lot of money with the border, with uh, with our national guard and our DPS officers. We have all these people coming in from all over the state being pushed down to the border. I think we're going to cripple our Texas National Guard because these are weekend warriors, for lack of a better word. They spend their time because they want to serve their country, but they also have jobs and they have lives. And so you 
call them up and you send them to the border for a year or six months or whatever time frame, that's disrupting their careers and their lives. And you continue to do that, you're going to kill your recruiting. First of all, you're not going to have anybody join the Texas National Guard going forward, in my opinion. It's going to be a very tough situation. You already have a tough recruiting problem. You got the same problem with DPS. You're pulling these people in for temporary duty from all over the state. Right. And you're having them come to the border. They're having to spend many, many months at a time away from their families. There's all kinds of morale problems being created, as I understand, from GPS and all kinds of extracurricular activities that would not occur if they were in their home station. And then the other problem we're having on the border is we're having stops. Our stop activity uh, is, is three or four times what it is in the rest of the state. So these people, especially DPS, are stopping people all the time causing dis- discomfort in our communities because they're being stopped to ask them, you know, checking for maybe they're, they're transporting people or they're doing something right. possibly illegal. That's an annoying and invasive process that we shouldn't have to suffer through either. So yeah. there's a lot of negative consequences coming from this yeah. that, uh, that the average person, you know, living in the northern part of the state doesn't understand. Mm-hmm. And the fact that uh, we're going to have a terrible problem with our border patrol, uh, our, our Texas National Guard, and our DPS recruitment because of these problems. And we already have a huge problem with Border Patrol and CBP people. They've never been able to meet their job requirements because there's not enough people because why? We have a demographic problem. We don't have enough workforce. Mm -hmm. The 87% that I face, Mm -hmm. virtually every business in the country is now facing. And so we have real workforce problems. And if you you put these people into a situation where they don't want to stay because they have no ability to maintain their life in a reasonable way, you're going to have serious problems. So I, I, uh, I, I understand the frustration. It's yeah. a huge frustration, but is it being effective? I don't think it's effective. Yeah. On a related note, last year, uh, SB4 was signed into law in Texas, which allowed law enforcement officials in Texas to arrest someone for unlawful entry and they could spend up to six months in jail. Um, and I think the, one of the issues that many people have had with this, uh, it was the idea of how are you going to determine if, if, if you're a law enforcement uh, person in Texas, how are you going to determine if someone has, has made an unlawful entry, if you didn't, didn't witness it. And so are you just going to be stopping people that you think maybe look suspicious? And I think that there's a lot of concern about how that, I, I mean, we, we really don't know at this point how it's going to play out. I mean, we're in the early stages with this, but, uh, what do you, what do you think about that? No, and I think it is. It's proven out to be that there's, there's an excessive amount of stops. I mean, the data, I mean, the, the data is published by the state. These different zones of the state have keep up with the data on stops mm-hmm. and the border region, yeah. which is border region is three, border area three has got data that's completely verifies the fact that these stops are excessive and they've been going on for a long time now for several years uh, because of the very thing you talked about there how do we know whether you're here illegal or not illegally and the fact that you're in a car and maybe you've got five or six people in a car uh, which is not uncommon on the border with large families people do travel around like that and so those people are constantly being stopped the other problem we're having is you're stopping trucks and they're they're basically causing serious delays and logistics problems on the border with our trucking industry. Laredo itself crosses 20,000 18-wheelers a day. Laredo now is the largest port in the nation. Our business and commercial activity is huge, and those trucks are coming back and forth carrying 
vital products in our supply chain to support the economy of the United States and Canada and Mexico. And periodically, the, the governor has gone in there with the DPS and stopped inspecting all these trucks that are in this what we call the border zone, which is basically 20 miles on the north side of the border and 20 miles on the south side of the border. And that zone there is where these basic trucks are, are, mm -hmm. are crossing. They're inspected by the CBP people as they cross. And then there's another checkpoint about 20 miles north of, this, of the border, in most cases, somewhere between 18 and 25 miles. And then they're checked again. Well, he's gotten his troopers in there are re-inspecting re them and they're inspecting them now for safety reasons. So if you got a mud flap that's not right or you got a turn signal that's not right, these trucks are being impounded and being inspected. The problem is a lot of that inspection was going on right at the bridgeheads as trucks were coming across. Mm -hmm. Well, they were backing up then into the into Mexico because they couldn't exit the bridges because they were being inspected. And they're basically saying, well, what's the problem? We're, we're on U.S. soil now and we're, our inspections are 15 or 20 or 30 minutes time frame. Well, we don't have any 20 or 30 minutes in the border. When you have 20,000 trucks crossing every day, one minute is a disruption. Yeah. So we had terrible problems with that, uh, backing up into the bridges and causing problems and delays, which aggravates the inflation problem because stuff doesn't get delivered. Supply. We have supply shortages, mm -hmm. all the consequences. The problem I have with what most people are doing today is law of physics. Every action creates an equal and opposite reaction. We're not spending enough time understanding the reaction to our policies and our processes. And so we don't we want to look like there. we're taking action, we don't, but we're we not, don't we're look not. out there and say, oh, my goodness, mm -hmm. what have I done now? Yeah. And then when we had these uh, stoppages that caused massive problems and we were calling the governor's office and stopping this and saying, quit, you can't do this anymore. Sure. And push people, people in Austin pushing back saying, you know, why is this such a big problem? Well, they are, they're sitting way up there in Austin and we're right here on the border and we can look at the trucks and see the problem. We had people that were stuck in line for as much as 24 hours trying to cross the border. Yeah. There was no facilities for them to use restroom. There was no facilities for them to eat. Uh, they couldn't ban in their trucks. Uh, and, you know, a big mess. So I think we need to think more about what we're doing here. And that's just exactly what, in my opinion, happened to the Biden administration. They had this generally socially good policy, so-called, to let mm -hmm. the people in who are suffering. But you open the door to everybody, and suddenly now you have a flood, and now what are you going to do with it? Now it's hard to get ahead of it, and now they're scrambling to try to figure out how do I get ahead of it. Mm -hmm. And that's the problem we have today. You've got to stop it. I'm sorry. you just got to stop it. Yeah. Before we wrap things up, I wanted to ask you about uh, an op-ed that you wrote recently for the Express News <coughs> where you were uh, addressing the issue of, of crime downtown. And yeah. I think you said that this is – uh, the public safety problems that you're seeing downtown are, are the worst that you've seen. Um, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, uh, about what you've, what you're seeing and, and your concerns about it. Well, we're very concerned because we have a big investment downtown. Our bank headquarters here in San Antonio is down on the river walk yeah. uh, next to what was used to be called the AT&T center, which was, um, uh, their head headquarters when they were here in San Antonio before they left to Dallas, uh, our, our, one of our primary companion building there was the AT&T headquarters building. And we have had a very hard time renting that building because our, the people who want to come into the downtown San Antonio 
don't want to come into downtown San Antonio anymore because they're, they're tired of the homeless problem. People have to walk on the streets normally to do parking because we have a parking problem in downtown San Antonio for businesses and for office buildings. And so ladies walking up and down the streets early in the morning or early in the evening, especially in the wintertime when it gets dark so early, they're being harassed and bothered by people. They get on, they get uncomfortable. Uh, and so people are saying, well, we're not going to be, we're not going to stay downtown anymore. So we've had this massive exodus of uh, people that uh, businesses that don't want to be in downtown anymore. We're seeing very difficult future for us to be able to lease that space. And so uh, we went over to the mayor's office and had a discussion with him and talked about, hey, we've had a very significant investment downtown. Uh, we are we are looking at doing more investing in the downtown area. We've got the Alamo project, which I think is is going to be maybe most important tourist attraction in Texas again. Mm-hmm. Uh, the things that are being done there are 20 or 25 years behind schedule. Should have been done years ago. Yeah. We're finally reaching the pinnacle apex of what would be the greatest tourist attraction in the state of Texas because of what the state has done to sponsor that and what the local business leaders have come to spend uh, money and make donations. We made a donation to it ourselves as a company. What did the mayor tell you when you talked to him about this? Well, he says we have all these police people on the streets. So we have all these people monitoring the, the, the homeless. And it's just not true. Uh, we what? walked the streets. We walked over there and didn't see what single police were doing anything. And then we've allowed, uh, allowed the, uh, the river walk to become a hazard again. When I first came to San Antonio, uh, in the seventies, you know, the Riverwalk was not a very pleasant place. And the, the thing that changed the Riverwalk from an unpleasant place to a pleasant place was law enforcement. When they started patrolling the river and then they started making investments in the river and making it a true, true tourist attraction, that changed the whole dynamic of downtown San Antonio. We need to get back to basics. Well, do you think Haven for Hope, uh, which is the city set up to address homelessness, I mean, do you think it's been successful or what do you, what, how do you? I, I, I think those kind of programs have to be carefully measured and where they are being put because they draw people from everywhere. You know, the, the social media that exists today uh, provides opportunities for people to come to cities where they believe they can get serious advantages. And I think that draws people, draws homeless to the city. When you have, when you have superior products and superior services for, for people like that, they come here. Uh, and that's, I think, is a big problem is we are, we are so you think drawing, it's drawn, drawing drawn people, people to the city. And, and, and I believe that from the things that we've seen that the homeless industry or the society has an organization about it as well in terms of where they raise money and what corners they stand on and how they how they promote uh, their existence. Uh, you know, there's a lot of problems in that community with drugs and other other issues, alcoholism, you feel very, very, very concerned for those folks. But at the same time, we've got to maintain our lives and uh, and we have public areas that the people should be able to come to. And I think the first duty of government is that every citizen should be safe in their community. Mm-hmm. And we are not safe in our communities anymore. And that will turn us into a terrible outcome here with our property values and the ability of get people to be in downtown. We have a problem already because of stay-at-home issues, you know, work-from-home issues. Uh, and then you put that on top of it, you basically have a situation where you have a collapsing market. And we just don't need that uh, in San Antonio. I think San Antonio has 
probably one of the nicest downtowns that you could ever have and wish for. And with the Alamo coming on, there's all kinds of positives that would uh, be attached to that. And if we don't manage the homeless problem and law and law enforcement doesn't be tough on on crime in downtown San Antonio, we will lose it. Well, Dennis, it was good talking with you. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. And thanks for everyone uh, listening. Hope you're all doing well and we'll be back next week. Take care.